This is Truth Jihad Radio, where we're still allowed to talk about censorship. Help us keep getting away with it. Go to truthjihad.com and hit the subscribe at Substack button. Welcome back. This is the second hour of the live broadcast of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, waging the all-out struggle for truth every Friday evening right here on Revolution.Radio, the home of all-out free speech on the Internet airwaves. Free speech is a vanishing commodity, and the Internet, which seemed to be impregnable to censorship for so long, suddenly got, well, Pregnable. In fact, the Internet is now turning into another sort of mainstream dominated uh, forum where the de facto public squares today are, of course, the social media outfits, uh, Facebook and Twitter and so on. And somewhere along the line, just not that many years ago, suddenly uh, a, a switch got flipped and suddenly Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act which had immunized social media platforms and, in fact, all Internet, quote unquote, platforms against liability, civil liability, that is, as long as they were platforms, not publishers, meaning as long as they did not favor any constitutionally protected speech over any other constitutionally protected speech. They just let anybody post anything they want, just like the telephone system lets you say anything you want on the telephone. That was what we assumed the Communications Decency Act in Section 230 meant. Everybody assumed that. And then suddenly a few years ago, five, six, seven years ago, think tanks and op-ed pieces and stuff started saying, no, no, Section 230 doesn't really say that. And then suddenly it's 2018 and Alex Jones gets erased and more and more people are getting erased. Even the president, Donald Trump, gets erased. There's really no more Internet free speech just over in the corners, the barbed wire surrounded so-called free speech zones where you can say anything you want as long as you have a big enough audience, which unfortunately, I guess, describes what we're doing here at Truth on Radio. Uh, and even there, who knows what the future may or may not bring. So uh, things are looking grim. And here to console us with the thought that maybe free speech isn't the number one issue, maybe good speech is the number one issue and free speech is only a distant number two is philosophy professor Peter Simpson. He's the author of Theocracy's Challenge, a great essay. We talked about that a few shows back. And Political Illiberalism, a brilliant book, uh, a critique of a major aspect of, what should we call it, the, uh, the matrix, <laughs> the, uh, the wrong way of thinking that is uh, poisoning this decadent culture. Anyway, let's, let's get into it. Hey, welcome, Peter. How are you? Hello. <laughs> I'm well, thank you very much, and how are you? I'm okay. It's great to have you back. Uh, so here we are, uh, practicing free speech on the Internet airwaves, which I was brag about having done since I did my first radio show in 2006. It was a complete accident. Jim Fetzer called me up just minutes before he couldn't make it onto his show and asked if I could guest host, so I just jumped on the telephone and became the guest host of Fetzer's show on RBN, Republic Broadcasting Network. I interviewed a guy named John Kaminsky, who was a radical, raving, ranting, anti-Jewish guy. And so uh, I had a very interesting conversation with him. Uh, and I've been doing I this. I can imagine. 
Yeah. <laughs> Doing this crazy uh, Internet free speech thing ever since. And it's great because, you know, there I've just discovered so many areas, not just 9-11, but a long list of them where the um, the dominant narrative is is probably wrong. So it's been a lot of uh, fun and so on going after the uh, uh, <laughs> the sacred cows. But now I kind of feel like the walls are closing in on me. You know, the barbed wire is getting higher and thicker and it's getting, you know, the pen, the free speech pen that we're in is, is getting smaller as the barbed wire closes in on us. Uh, and so, Peter, I know you're you support uh, the kind of free speech we do on this radio show, but you're also a philosopher sure. who's not so sure about free speech being the be all and end all. So maybe you could talk about how you sort of balance uh, these two aspects of your thought. Well, Kevin. Yes, it's not an easy question because if you do have a situation where there are powerful people pushing an agenda that's not particularly good or beneficial, then one certainly needs to be able to speak against it. So in that context, the free speech of opposition is certainly important. On the other hand, if you mean by free speech saying anything about anything, including the, the crudest and most vulgar things, that doesn't seem to be such a good idea because it will uh, destroy the tone of society, corrupt morals, and lead eventually to political decay and ultimately tyranny, since if you have people who are indisciplined and have no self-control, you have to control them from the outside, which in this particular case would typically mean you need a tyrant or a power with the power of tyranny in order to control people. The kind of thing, of course, that happens in prisons. So it's not a simple question of free speech as opposed to controlled or limited speech, but speech that promotes the good life of virtue and intelligence. Now that, of course, raises the question, what is virtue and what is intelligence? Well, we do have wonderful philosophical traditions that have discussed this and elaborated on it over the centuries. So we don't have to start uh, at the beginning, we can start with them. And of course, the classic instance would be Aristotle. And Aristotle's best political arrangement, which he argues for at length, is actually kinship, not democracy, or as we think of it, or elections, but a king who is supremely virtuous and therefore always knows and does what is the right thing. Well, mm -hmm. that's a nice image, and Aristotle himself was perfectly open about the fact that it's, you're unlikely ever to get such an individual, but at least it gives you a measure by which to judge the other political arrangements that we have around us. So suppose we were to imagine that we had a president who was supremely virtuous and ruled with a view to virtue. That is to say, for courage, self-control, justice, honesty, um, wisdom. 
wouldn't that be a very good thing? Now, people might complain, but who is going to complain about justice, honesty, self-control, decency, but only people who do not want those qualities and people whom you wouldn't really want to live with and certainly whom you wouldn't want to be in charge of your life or your society. So it seems an eminently sane approach to political life. The, the large question is, how do you find or how do you develop or how do you produce such virtuous people? So do you want to get into that question, Kevin? Uh, yeah, sure. But quickly before we do, um, I think that the tradition of jurisprudence in the United States, uh, you know, looking at issues around the First Amendment, has recognized some of what you said about how free speech shouldn't necessarily include the degrading and vulgar kinds of speech, such as, uh, I think, traditionally obscenity and pornography, along with libel and incitement, were excluded from constitutional protection. And I'm sure we would agree that that is as it should be, although I suppose that was whittled away at a bit uh, starting around 1960 or so when I believe that certain kinds of obscenity and pornography became uh, slightly protected. But in, in any case, in terms of the actual concrete issue around First Amendment uh, violations by the de facto public square guardians at the social media companies uh, and other uh, gatekeepers of speech, it seems like there are more and more gatekeepers who have no problem with extremely degrading and disgusting, uh, often downright filthy, filthy and, and you know, hor horrifically disturbing kinds of material that nobody would have allowed in the public sphere back when I was a kid in the 60s, for example. Uh, and now the, this stuff is just everywhere and everybody is exposed to it, whereas valuable critique with lots and lots and lots of redeeming social value, critique of powerful interest, which, as you suggested, is, is at the highest level of deserving protection, as the tradition of jurisprudence under the First Amendment agrees, that's the stuff, or at least a lot of it, is, is the stuff that's now being censored. So they're allowing a lot of vulgar stuff that maybe should be prohibited, even under First Amendment jurisprudence, while uh, censoring the exact sort of thing that ought to be the most protected. Well, I think you're right. So we should raise the question how that has come about and what has been the change in political understanding to justify it or make it popular, or at any rate, to make it what the political rulers now impose. And I think you'd have to say it's because of a decline in moral culture amongst the political elites who have decided for whatever reason that vulgarity and crudity and other degrading things which essentially work to destroy the moral fiber of the people, those are the things that they want which, of course, is also typically what um, tyrants want because it makes people weak and subservient and servile so they can be more easily ruled. If you have people who are courageous and honest and just 
and self-controlled, it's hard actually to dominate them in a tyrannical way because they will follow their uh, ideas of justice and honesty and say no, even at the cost of their own lives. Well, I don't know that the question of how we got from the somewhat better state of affairs in the 60s where we are now is a large historical political question. Um, I think one just has to say that somehow or other the political elite, the agenda, the, the press, the, the, uh, the education, the publishing companies have all gone in the direction of crudity and perversity. How do you stop that? Well, I don't think you stop it with laws or changing judicial jurisprudence or decisions by the Supreme Court. You can only change it by changing the moral tone of the mass of the people, which is, as I say, and as you seem to agree, we have lost. Well, historically, the way in which to raise the general tone of the people at large is through religion. You can't do it through philosophy, even if philosophy says the same things, because philosophy is rather abstruse and complex and difficult, and it's never going to appeal to or be much intelligible to uh, the vast majority of people. Of course, that's partly because so many philosophers are terrible writers. Uh, you're one of the few philosophers who's actually quite readable. <laughs> but, uh, most of them, are, I, even when I was training to be a composition teacher, uh, one of the first things that those of us in that field noticed was um, you know, academicians are often bad writers and philosophers are maybe the worst of the whole lot. Well, I thank you for the compliment in, in, in my own case. Um that may be due, if it's true, and I thank you that it is true. That may be due to the fact that at school, when I was at school, I was reading the great Greek writers in Greek because I studied Greek at school. So I was reading Homer, Thucydides, Plato, uh, and in Latin, Tacitus, Cicero. And almost inevitably, you develop a certain feeling for how to write well just because you're translating great writers. So you become enamored yourself of achieving something similar in your own language. And of course, there are great writers in, in English whom one can uh, imitate. One of the great writers that, that I've often read with much pleasure is John Henry Newman, now a saint, by the way, declared by uh, the Catholic Church. So the, the, the taste for the ability to write well comes from reading great writers of the past. And as you probably know, and I know myself from my own experience, that tends to happen rather less these days. For instance, in, in English literature classes, one is supposed to be woke and um, open to different styles and different groups of people who are writing. So instead of reading, I don't know, Shakespeare or Milton, one reads the latest 
screed from some newspaper or magazine or whatever it might be, where the idea of elegance of speech and elegance of thought seems not to count, but what you might say, authenticity, finding your voice, speaking how you naturally speak. But, you know, the way one naturally speaks reflects the culture in which one lives. So if the culture is of one's background, one's training, one's education has been rather lacking in elegance and sophistication and accuracy, then your speech, however authentic to you as the person you are, is not going to be very good. And people who read you and follow you will imitate such relatively low uh, patterns of writing and speaking. So I'm afraid one, one has to be something of an elitist to support good speech, elegant speech, good action, good behavior, uh, so as to give a, a tone to society and the main influence and in, uh, people of influence in society that not only elegance of speech, but quality of character. And as you know, probably better than I, a lot of the, these qualities that were still around to some extent when you and I were young have rather disappeared from contemporary society. And after all, the, the, the degree of crudity both in, in public, um, well, yeah, in, in the public media is astonishing. From when I was young, a lot of the things that are now said and, and done and, and written would just be uh, given no place at all 40, 50 years ago. Um, vulgarity of speech, for instance, in, in, in public. Uh, nowadays, it's quite common to hear people swearing and using vulgar language, uh, even on public TV. In, in the past, it would not have been allowed. You had to keep at least some standards. Mm -hmm. I now sound like uh, an old man complaining about <laughs> things were better in my day and being very upset with, with the young, which is always a, a, a fault that one tends to fall into as one gets older. But I'm trying to appeal to general principles of uh, decent life, decent speech, decent behavior. Um, is that enough to sort of answer your question or move us in the right? Uh, sure. And, and that, yeah, yeah. And, and that raises the question about whether this misguided push for internet censorship might be a reaction to a genuine problem. Maybe a very, you know, they've diagnosed the problem wrongly and they're going about addressing it in, in a totally uh, insane <laughs> or at least very confused way. But it does seem to me that the kinds of problems that you've been discussing uh, may be connected to the medium of the Internet and especially the social media, which do prioritize very kind of brief blurt outs. Um, and the more sensational they are, the more buttons they push, whether positive or negative, the more they get shared, 
and the more they get noticed. And the name of the game is just to rack up eyeballs, whether you're somebody posting on Twitter or Facebook or whether you're the advertisers who monetize the whole thing or the people who run Twitter or Facebook for that matter. You're just trying to maximize the eyeballs and therefore the money. So vulgarity sells, shock value sells, um, and often misinformation sells. Uh, playing to people's prejudices and telling them what they want to hear sells. And so when the censors say that we've got this terrible problem of medical misinformation, let's say, or uh, we've got all these Trump-loving yahoos out there spreading lies about the election or this or that, or Trump himself uh, spreading lies or provoking violence, blah, blah, blah. They may be wrong in specific instances, and they may be censoring mostly the wrong things, but there may be a certain degree of accuracy in their perception that there is something wrong with the way the Internet has dumbed people down. Uh, nobody seems to have much of an attention span anymore. They just doom scroll through social media rather than reading entire uh, books, much less books that are written elegantly. As far as I can tell, it seems like the 19th century had a lot more elegant writing than what's come since. Uh, I, I spend a lot of time reading 19th century novels, actually, uh, in my spare yeah. time when I'm not doing conspiracy radio. Uh, <laughs> so, so maybe these censors are not completely wrong. That is, they're, maybe they're reacting to, to a, a real problem with the actual medium. As McLuhan said, the medium is the message that the structure of the medium determines what can be expressed through that medium. And maybe the structure of the media that we work through, especially social media, encourages uh, triteness, superficiality, stupidity and vulgarity. And so maybe we need some kind of a solution for that problem. But I, I don't think censoring dissenting opinions and labeling views that you disagree with as misinformation and then erasing them is the way to do it. Right. There, there are several points that you, you're making there. One is that the, uh, the media, the, the tools that you use to communicate are just tools. They don't determine how they get used. Now, admittedly, um, you know, writing brief messages on emails will tend to promote brevity of speech and perhaps lead to a decline in elegance of writing, just like writing telegrams might have done in the past. But that seems to be a relatively minor thing that, that what you and I are complaining about in particular is not so much that people use short sentences or uh, just a group of words to get a message across. We're talking about the substance of what's being got across, the content. And that's not the result of the medium used or the tools used, but of the people using them. Well, well, well um, Peter, let, let, for the sake of argument, let me just suggest that if you want to maximize the eyeballs or the shares or the likes with a social media post, and you have a strict limit of how many characters you can put out there, you've got to have the maximum emotional impact, you know, uh, with, in, with very few words to reach a broad group of people. Doesn't that kind of channel you towards a certain punchiness or vulgarity, even a shock value, finding a way to 
get their attention, you know, uh, smack the smack the donkey's head is the way you get get his attention, as one of Roosevelt or whoever said. I mean, it, it seems to me that there is actually a, a bias in that medium that promotes vulgarity and, and shock value. Well, yes, because that's the easiest way to get a message across, but it's not the best way. And it, it's perfectly possible to get a, a message across in a pithy way that's not vulgar and it's not expressed in vulgar ways i mean advertising of course is one way of doing that and some of the adverts i've seen over the years have been very clever and not at all vulgar or offensive so it's it's not that in order to get attention you have to be vulgar or crude you you could be brief in speech and not follow strict rules of grammar with without the content of what you're saying being vulgar, it has to be informative, but it doesn't have to be crude. Um, so I, I, I think your judgment, while it reflects, I think, to some extent, what's actually gone on in contemporary society is not totally correct because you can use these media, uh, despite their brevity and their need to catch attention, without um, sinking to the lowest level. You can achieve it if you're clever in other ways. And, and people used to do that. Uh, and actually, they, sometimes they still do. Occasionally, you come across a, an advert or a notice, which is really very cleverly done. Um, say, an advert for a, a new play or perhaps a new fashion. You don't have to retreat to sex or crudity or something in order to get it across. It does, of course, require more effort and more cleverness to achieve that result. But okay, why not? Why shouldn't we promote the clever and um, the inventive rather than the crude? People who have to result to vulgarity to get a message across are basically showing that they don't have anything else to do. They have no further cleverness or skill, so they sink to something which will shock with its crudity. That's part of my analysis. So um, I, I don't entirely agree with the way you're explaining what's gone on. I think what's gone on certainly has been influenced by the nature of the medium, but primarily it's the nature of the people using it or exploiting it uh, for their own advantage to sell, to um, get people to come and buy something or go to the latest show or movie or whatever it might be. Um, and it's always possible to <laughs> attract more attention if you're crude and vulgar, if you shock the, the standing mores, the, the banners that people have, if you shock them and, and affront them, you will get a lot of attention. Um, now, of course, in, in past years, I think such things would have been uh, stepped on and stopped fairly quickly. Now they're allowed to flourish. So, and I think yeah, well, this argument against the shocking and the vulgar has been sort of twisted by the censors uh, to censor the so-called conspiracy theories. And, and from their point of view, yeah. 
you know, the claim that 9-11 was an inside job, for example, is so shocking and so outrageous that uh, these poor, innocent Internet users have gotten sort of addicted to looking at these these shocking conspiracy theory assertions and have come to believe them. And uh, and this is because the medium uh, kind of uh, highlights this. Like once you watch Loose Change, YouTube feeds you lots of other conspiracy theories, used to anyway, <laughs> before they tweaked the algorithms, used to feed you lots of other uh, conspiracy and 9-11 related content. And so you would see a whole bunch of 9-11 stuff. And now you've seen all that stuff and you realize that, hey, the so-called conspiracy theorists are right. It really was an inside job. I wonder what else they're lying about. And then the YouTube algorithm back before they tweaked it would show you lots of other things that they were lying about. And so the gatekeepers are horrified. And so they they think that that's the problem, that the intellectual shock value of the so-called conspiracy theories, the, the unauthorized information, is the problem. And so that's what they want to censor. And meanwhile, all of the hideous, low-level, vulgar stuff, they leave alone. And, and so I, I think that's completely misguided. And a sane society would actually be promoting the uh, critiques of power that are so shocking because they're they're so important and so true and expose such grave and grotesque crimes those actually should be uh, given more attention not less but uh, we're ruled by by fools and knaves so they're they're censoring precisely what ought to be promoted and then they're allowing and even promoting the stuff that they should be censoring well i agree and in that of course they're um, very clever because that enables them to get away with what they want and uh, not be challenged in any serious way. But, you know, if, if a, a society that um, where its leaders will commit such great crimes that we've, you've been mentioning, that's already a corrupt uh, political elite. And if they're going to get away with whatever crimes they want to get away with, they they obviously have to crack down on any attempts to expose what's happened. So the the, the problem there is is not so much that, you know, things like 9-11 or whatever whatever else it might be uh, are being suppressed, but that the people in charge are the sort of people who want to suppress such things. How did we get to a situation where the people in charge are willing to commit crimes of this kind, assuming that they did, because once that becomes the case, their interest is to suppress all possible revelations of what has gone on. Um, so the, the, the problem is not the, the attempt or the desire to suppress discussion about 9-11, but that something like 9-11 could have happened in the first place. Let us assume uh, yes. that, the, that, the, that you know, the, the, the standard view that I think you've adopted and I'm inclined to, but you know, getting truth on this matter is hard. But let's assume that 9-11 was, in fact, an inside job. Well, um, obviously, the, the people behind it are going to uh, do everything they can to stop that fact getting out, or if it gets out, from becoming popularly believed. And they will resort to whatever they need to achieve that result, which will include diverting people's attention to something else 
uh, add the best thing to do is, you know, crudity and vulgarity. So I, I think the elites have been very clever in what they've done. They're arranging a state of affairs where they can get away with what they want to get away with. And no one is able or even interested in calling them out. Right. And, and part of that, I think, that along with encouraging the vulgarity, uh, there's a certain kind of flood the zone with feces, uh, as Steve Bannon would say, a strategy yeah. involved here, where not only the, they're flooding the zone with the vulgarity and, and stuff and then saying that's the free speech and we have to suppress the, um, the false conspiracy theories, but they're also actually perhaps encouraging many uh, genuinely false and often absurd conspiracy theories and flooding the zone in that way as well. Uh, Cass Sunstein, Obama's information czar, who wrote the book Conspiracy Theories, Causes and Cures with Adrian Vermeule, in which he argued that someday it might be necessary to make conspiracy theories illegal. And he's looking at 9-11 as the profoundly dangerous conspiracy theory he's mainly focused on. He He says someday we'll have to make them illegal. But in the meantime, we should uh, cognitively infiltrate conspiracy movements and disable the purveyors of conspiracy theories. What did he mean by that? Well, by disable, I hope he didn't mean like uh, uh, physically disabling us or or eliminating us, but uh, by cognitively infiltrating conspiracy movements, what he seems to have meant is things like making sure that people who have looked at the 9-11 uh, dissident material. We'll also see a lot of flat earth material and so on and so forth. And I, I noticed when, when I, my flat earther uncle insisted that I watch a whole bunch of flat earth videos with him, that a, a huge number of very high production values, apparently very expensive uh, flat earth videos are out there with really slick looking, you know, very voluble professional narrators and these huge screens and great special effects. Must have somebody's been spending many millions of dollars to produce flat earth videos. And I wonder who could that be? Well, they're, I think they're flooding the zone. So now when the media says they have to censor these terrible conspiracy theories full of false information because, you know, they got Trump elected and they're a threat to public health or a threat to democracy and so on and so forth. And look how stupid all these conspiracy theories are. And people actually believe them. You know, look at look at QAnon, look at Flat Earth. Well, mm-hmm. maybe QAnon and Flat Earth and so many other things like that have been influenced or steered or even in some cases created by these people flooding the zone precisely so they can then try to stop us from talking about 9-11 and uh, the genuine COVID misinformation that the mainstream is putting out. And, and you know, they're trying to stop us from doing valid critiques of the mainstream world uh, by throwing out a lot of ridiculous stuff that they can beat up on and then tar us through association with. So I, I think that's been part of the strategy as well. Not only are they promoting the genuine vulgarity, but also they're promoting vulgar and false conspiracy theories uh, to try to make the, the true ones seem guilty by association. Well, yes, um, exactly right. Of course, that's what they're doing. Um, but okay, so that brings us back to the question, how is it that we're now in a situation where the, the people in charge are engaging in such egregious misinformation 
Uh, why is it that there's, uh, you know, people pushing 9-11 truth? Why is there this group of people who are opposing the, uh, the standard view? Um, we've got two different views on that question. The government one pushes one view and others push another. But there seems to be, well, I, I, I want to sort of step back and say, okay, what does this tell us about the contemporary political situation? Who, who's actually in charge and, and who should be in charge or who should be concerned with public media, public information, or dealing with questions like 9-11? Um, well, clearly at the moment, neither side seems to be the, the right people to do it, neither the government nor the, the opposition, because however clever either side might be, they're sort of getting nowhere against each other. And that's because um, the elites, the people in charge, have no interest in admitting. So suppose 9-11 was a, a, an inside job. They have no interest in admitting it. They're going to, their interest is to keep uh, the whole thing hidden. Fine, then that shows we have people in charge who are corrupt and shouldn't be in charge. How did they get that way? How, how did it get to be so corrupt in the first place? Uh, and what do you do if you can't do anything to reverse things and go back to something a little bit more sane? Well, you, you need a political culture that values uh, honesty, truth, uh, decency, etc. All the things that we started talking about um, at the beginning which means that you have to confront the problem not in terms of, oh, let's sort out the truth about 9-11, rather in terms of what can we do to improve the moral character of the people at large and more especially of the people who get to be uh, in positions of political, economic, and um, media influence. How do we change the culture of the elites and the people at large? Well, the only answer I know that really works and that has historically worked, although none has been really particularly uh, successful because we're all inclined to decay, has been religion. And you know, you, you're a Muslim, I'm a Catholic, and we, we both agree, I think, that the influence of religion in society uh, in terms of raising the moral level of the people and of the rulers is about the only thing that will get us out of the kinds of decay and crudity that we've just been talking about. And that used to be of course, true in, in, in the, the Christian West that a lot of things were just not tolerated in public because people just naturally regarded them as crude and vulgar and improper. Now we don't. Well, isn't that in large part because of the decline of religious practice or belief? Um, and, and take Iran, where now you have um, you know, a strong Muslim uh, political system with the Ayatollah, of course, uh, exercising a certain moral control over society. You probably know more about the state 
of things in Iran uh, than I do. But I rather suspect that they are not going to allow the kinds of crudity and vulgarity that we have here, and probably for the good. Mm-hmm. Especially so, not in, in public. They're in, in Islamic tradition, uh, typically, there's a certain willingness to look the other way regarding things people are doing when they're not corrupting public morals. Uh, but wow. the Western style of inflicting uh, gender-bending ideology and all sorts of you know, public disp- displays of sexuality and things like that uh, into the public sphere is totally wrong from an Islamic standpoint. Right. Well, good. So uh, there you have a religion that's refusing to allow the moral tone of society sinking below a certain level. Um, Obviously, you you can't totally suppress vice, but you can certainly do things to make sure that it's not not worse than it is and doesn't get worse. And to ensure that at at least in, in public and in open activity and speech, certain norms of decency um, are observed. Well, why can't we do that? Again, Iran has achieved it. Uh, Maybe any other Muslim countries are achieving it. I'm I'm not really up with all this. Um, We we did talk about Hungary uh, earlier uh, between ourselves and I don't know too much about Hungary, but they seem to have resisted a lot of the pressures coming from other parts of Europe in terms of the shutdown. Actually, in, in terms, I think, of the um, the quality of the life of the people. Hungary has a fairly strict immigration policy. Not that they don't allow people to go there and visit or even live there, but they're not going to allow the culture of the nation to be totally changed by massive immigration and that seems to be a reasonable position right you, you, any society can absorb immigrants provided they don't come all at once um, and they don't come in such a way as to change the culture in which they uh, where they come but eventually get absorbed into it and contribute to it rather than take away from it so Hungary might be an idea, and Iran another uh, image that we can pay attention to and look at. Though I must admit, I, I don't have much hope for the United States of the current rate of things. I'm not quite sure what could be done in this country to uh, restore what was, you know, even in the 50s and before then. But maybe you have some ideas. Well, there have been religious awakenings in American history, and we might be overdue for another one. Um, what form that would take, I'm not sure. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I can't, I can't see one happening uh, at the moment. There, there always are sort of strong religious elements in uh, American life, but they don't seem to be that significant anymore um i i really don't have any strong ideas of of what one could do other than raise these questions and at least with oneself and one's friends to 
live as well as one can, um, you know, people can can change a whole civilization if they live well themselves and slowly but surely influence others around them. I mean, after all, the, the, the corruption only happens because some people start it and it spreads. So why not re- the reverse of corruption? Do it in some other way. But if you're asking me for some concrete suggestions of how to do it, I, I'm not I'm not really entirely sure. I think it just has to happen at the individual level. Each person tries to live as well as he or she can in the world in which they live. Um, and in that way, to change the tone or the quality of society at large. But the other side of what we've been talking about, of course, is is, is the elites, the, the people at the top who seem to be bent on pushing quite strongly their own agenda, which is in entirely the other direction. Essentially, I think, because that way you can weaken the people and it's easier to control them. If, if people don't have any control over themselves, you can control them from the outside by manipulating what does attract them. Uh, so people who are enslaved to drugs or sex or whatever else it might be, you can control them very easily from the outside. But if you have someone who makes uh, decisions carefully and honestly and judges fairly, it's it's harder to corrupt those people or take them where you want to go because they will pause and make a judgment and might disagree with what you're suggesting because they have a certain degree of independence and self-possession, which present, prevents them from being dragged off by the latest fashion or the latest attraction. I think some so, of that independence and self-possession uh, links up with religion in that people who are not as terrified of death as materialists often are uh, ha- have um, a more secure foundation uh, and, uh, on which to, to keep them from being uh, manipulated, and that's where, yeah. where religion has uh, has its effect. And then I wonder if, in the United States today, as various kinds of activities give us sort of simulacra of mystical experience, which is the direct experience of the truth that lies behind religious language and symbols, that as people get a taste of that truth through techniques of meditation or psychedelics or whatever they're doing, that the the problem becomes how, how does that, which may have some beneficial effect on an individual level, how does that hook up with uh, a, a social movement that improves the tone of the culture and brings you know, virtue into the culture and, and pushes back at the vice? And I, I see that the, the mystical element in religion in, in Islamic practice with fasting, for example, which has mystical effects or praying even in this Islamic Salat, uh, that brings people together in a common culture and a taste of, of the divine. And in the U.S., the only mysticism is, is this fringe stuff, which isn't really tied into a cultural dispensation. So I, I don't it, I try to imagine how a religious awakening could grow out of these things in the U.S. And I, I fail to figure it out. 
Well, yes, I'm afraid I, I, I'm inclined to agree with you that, that I don't really see anything currently happening at the moment that I could appeal to as a possible solution or a beginning of some kind of improvement. Um, but, you know, it's, it's one thing to say there is a solution which is now genuinely possible, which may or may not be the case, and to raise the general question of, you know, what makes societies and cultures flourish and benefit their people and what achieves the opposite. So you can, you can set out a, a pattern of good and bad or less good and uh, less bad so that you can say, well, this is uh, the direction to go in if, if you can manage it. Or you can hold the, the uh, things where they are so they don't get worse. And there might be things you can do there or uh, other things you can introduce. And the great philosophers who talked about political science and political arrangements, generally speaking, were, were setting out uh, a whole range of, of options that might take place. And they're very bad to the very good explaining how each could come to be uh, or be protected or be overthrown and then leaving it to practical agents to do the best they could in the circumstances where they found themselves using these philosophical reflections as a kind of guide or stimulus uh, to what they could do. Of course, that means that you need political rulers who are willing to pay attention to political philosophical speculation, especially speculation of a kind that stresses the importance of moral virtue and decency and actually also of wisdom. Now, there's, there's plenty of sources where you could find this material, but you know, how do you make it real or, or active in a given society? Which brings us back to the same question again, because I, I really don't know anything that can do it besides a, uh, a religious faith that um, controls, well, that, that spreads through the, the nation as a whole and raises the general tone of people's individual morality and their expectations of what is acceptable and what isn't. So, you know, I'm not in favor of entire, you know, entire free speech or free behavior because that essentially means that you have no principles at all. You just let anything happen. And if that's the case, things sink to the lowest common denominator. You need some standards and some measures of what is acceptable and what is not if society is to retain any uh, reasonable level of decency. Um, and historically, the, the only way that's happened, as I think you would admit, is through religion. Because not all religions have been helpful. Um, the ancient pagan religions tended to promote perversity in some respects. <clears throat> but Historically, Christianity, Islam, um, Buddhism, uh, 
various national um, ways of living or expectations have, I think, given countries and peoples the necessary level of moral sanity that they could live a fairly decent life with ups and downs, of course. Whereas, I think you would agree, in, in, in the European, American, Western world, religion has more or less lost its hold, at least as a public influence. Of course, plenty of individuals are religious, and you know the churches are not empty, and the mosques are not empty. But this seems to be more a kind of personal thing that some people do and some people don't. It, it doesn't give any longer um, a tone to the whole of um, society. Um, and the elites seem, as far as I can work out, to be you know, rather keen on doing this. It supports their own desires, whatever they are. Well, I suppose it's a desire ultimately for control. It's the ancient passion of the tyrant, the person who wants to be uh, in control of everyone and rule everyone and who will do anything to get there. Um, and so the passion for tyranny is always a problem too. It's, it's always there. It always has to be counted. But anyone who gets into political life is and the various enjoyments of political life you know, fame, attention, ability to do things. When, when that's the case, you know, people get tempted, unfortunately, to abuse their power. Um, and that, of course, leads, sadly, to larger political, social problems. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Indeed. Um, Don't you think it's ironic uh, that among these people with with these tyrannical passions for power are the neoconservatives, the group that actually has critiqued political liberalism um, with a lot more. Well, they've (laughs) attracted a whole movement and uh, and they would actually agree with us about the role of religion and the need for religion. But they would say that we, the neocons, who are beyond good and evil and know that it's all a big myth and a lie, are the ones that are going to create the fake religion by projecting uh, images on the walls of Plato's cave. 9-11 was one such image, a gigantic human sacrifice for their neo-paganism, and they're happily promoting this the decadent bourgeois liberalism and its religious aspects like Holocaust worship and diversity worship and so on and so forth, gender-bender worship, all of this is... The, uh, the new Western faith that apparently the neocons are uh, promoting surreptitiously, knowing that it's all nonsense and thinking that all religions are nonsense. So maybe we'll, we should probably have to well, take that one up on another show because I think we're at the, at the final moments here. Uh, ah, so, yeah, right. Yes, well, I do I, hear them. I, I, make, I make one comment. The, 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 the neocons who think you have to have something in society to control things, that, that they would not be in favor of the kind of degeneration we now have. They would want some, at least some solid moral base, even if they didn't agree with Okay, them. so ha- half a cheer for the neocons. We'll talk about them later. Uh, thank you so much. Peter Simpson, always great talking with you. Take care. Thank you very much, sir. Okay, bye-bye. 
Fruitsy Hat Radio, FruitsyHat.com. See you next week here on Revolution. Radio.